And so now, Lord, indeed, we ask that as we look at your holy scripture, your written word, as we study in depth um, the good news of our salvation presented through Acts, Lord, we ask that you would draw our hearts ever closer to you, that you would give us strength, confidence, assurance, faith in you for today, bread for our journey today, that little bit of manna that we need to make it through today, through this week, um, through whatever it is that you have us facing as we um, as we live our lives. So we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So looking at your sheet, you'll see within the context of where we are in the book of Acts, we're in chapter 7 today, and we've come all the way through chapter 6 to see that um, some of the amazing work of God in the early church. Of course, beginning in chapter 1 with Jesus' ascension, He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And then um, an angel tells the apostles, go back to Jerusalem, go back into the city and wait. Wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 2, the amazing wonder of the Holy Spirit poured out. Instead of it being a limited pouring out of the Holy Spirit, as in the Old Testament, just upon prophets, priests, and kings for a time being, here now we see that, um, according to Joel 2, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is like a deluge a pouring out upon all those who believe in Jesus, no matter whether or not they are men or women, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, we're going to see, um, and whether they are of high status or low status in the world's eyes. The Holy Spirit is poured out regardless of those things. Um, And then as a result of the pouring out of this Holy Spirit, we see these signs and wonders wonders being happening and being done through the apostles not just through the apostles, but through other disciples like Stephen, who we looked at last week. And some of those signs and wonders include, at the very basic internal level, the freeing up of the sinful human heart to be able to want to share um, generously with one another. That's a miracle. (laughs) A miracle. That's a miracle. That's a miracle right then and there that the human heart would be freed up, opened up to um, share generously with those in need. So we see that happening, um, that koinonia fellowship among the newborn baby church, and that koinonia fellowship, that sharing financially that happens is actually a result of the sharing and the unity that the brothers and sisters in Christ have with each other because of the sharing of God's own self with them, that God um, shares himself with us through Jesus Christ that we are in fellowship with God Almighty, the Lord of the, cre- you know, the, Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, our creator. And um, so you see this with the early church, that they had that fellowship with God that brought about fellowship on a horizontal level with each other that resulted in this generous sharing that resulted also, this pouring out of the Holy Spirit resulted also in miraculous signs and wonders um, that were signs that all could see and say, God is present here. Um, And we see that in the healing of the lame man in chapter 3. We see it in the special information, the knowledge that Peter has about the lying, even within the church. Um, Remember with Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. So that very sudden judgment that comes upon Ananias and Sapphira is really a sign of the presence of the living God, the spirit of truth in the midst of the body of believers. That Peter would have the insight to be able to say, you're lying. (laughs) just right there. Um, And so that's another sign and wonder. Um, We see it too, it says of Stephen, Stephen performs signs and wonders as well. We we saw that in chapter 6. Stephen is is, uh, set apart 
to serve in a certain way. Do you remember what we talked about last week about Stephen's role and why? Why was Stephen and others, there were six others, right, in chapter 6, why are they set apart? What, what is their job going to be? Take care of the widows and their uh, Yeah. Obeys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I love that. Barbara, I'm getting to the point. I know I'm, I'm only 35, and you can say you're only 35, but <laughs> I, I'm getting to the point where my nieces and nephews are teenagers, and I'm like, I'm their old maid aunt. It's great. <laughs> I'm the spinster aunt. I love that. No, it's so wonderful. It's a good thing, Dorothy, because it means they, they come to me and ask me things that they wouldn't ask their parents. And they, you know, I have a special role in their life. But yes, so those who are in need, those who have no one else to provide for them financially, are the ones who are especially receiving from this generosity, this fellowship, this koinonia fellowship that results in financial generosity and sharing. And one of the, there was a dispute, you're right, Barbara, that arose because there are two different groups within the Jewish Christians. They're all Jewish, but some of them are Hellenistic and some of them are Hebraic. Some of them speak Aramaic, which is a Hebrew dialect. Some speak Greek as the lingua franca or the, the known language around the Mediterranean basin because they're, they might have grown up not in Jerusalem, even though they're now in Jerusalem to worship. They might even now be living in Jerusalem. And some of them, the Hebraic Jews were more, um, were more Hebrew and Jewish in their cultural mindset, whereas the Hellenistic ones, had, uh, they would incorporate other aspects culturally into their lives um, from Hellenistic culture. Um, and so you see there's a, little, there's a little bit of a difference culturally between these two groups, linguistically between these two groups, and there's this fear. All of the apostles are Hebraic Jews. There's this fear on the part of the Hellenistic Jews, or whether it's real or unfounded, but it seems as though it's real. And it might just be that the apostles don't know who in the group of Hellenistic um, Jews really needs help, which of these widows really needs help. And so they appoint seven, um, the whole body of believers appoints seven men who are known to be of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, wise, recognized leaders. And so these men are going to identify and distribute the funds to those who most need them. But not only are they men of good repute and wise in, the world, in a worldly sense, but they're also wise in the spirit. And we see, this with, um, we see this with Stephen in particular. Stephen, in verse 8 of chapter 6, full of grace and power, is doing great signs and wonders. And he even gets up and he starts teaching in the synagogue um, in the synagogue, it was probably his synagogue, synagogue of the freedmen, because the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, they were all going to be, those were all Hellenistic Jews. And we think that Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, along with his six other men that were chosen to be deacons, or chosen to be in this special role of serving and distributing um, funds as needed. And so there's a dispute. Do you remember what the dispute is about? There's a twofold charge against Stephen. I put that in your context at the top of your page. There's a twofold charge, and it's not explicit. You kind of have to parse it out. And we talked a little bit about it at the end of the day last week. I see it in verse 11 of chapter 6, and again in verse 13. So the charge is that he is he is saying blasphemous words against two things, right? Against Moses and against God. What does it say then in 13? Mm-hmm. That the Jews false witness, who 
testified this. Mm-hmm. Father's never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. So the holy place and the law. So he's talking about, I just have to draw it, right? Okay, so Moses and God. And then this verse 11. We're just doing a little review. Verse 11. Verse 13, it's um, against the law and this holy place. Anybody want to take a gander at what this holy place means? Yeah, right. Why would it be the temple? Any thoughts about that? Sorry, I'm really putting you on the spot, Barbara. Well, they feel like that maybe he's trying to bring the temple down, and because the people that are the leaders of the temple, not necessarily do they follow Jesus' teachings and his. Beliefs or whatever. Right, and so the leaders of the temple are going to be the chief priests, right? And the high pri- the high priest, or you know, is the one leader of the Sanhedrin, which is the council of seventy leaders, and that's the council that Stephen's going to find himself before in in the part that we're going to read in a couple of minutes. But um, this holy place, this place was they were standing in the temple. They were standing on that holy place. They did, when they said this place, if I said this place right now and I'm standing here in Kramer House, I mean Kramer House, right? This place. They're standing there and they say, this holy place. He spoke against this holy place, meaning the temple, meaning the place on earth where they believed God met with them and God did meet with them in that place. Um, but one of the things that we're going to see that Stephen's going to show is that God met with his people throughout their history, not just in the holy place of the temple. And that um, there's going to be this subtle accusation on the part of Stephen that they have exalted the temple, this holy place, to be in the first place, in God's place. Um, that they have so loved and um, preserved and protected the temple that it became like a, an idol for them. And so it's a, it's a severe charge. He's going to accuse them of making the holy place into an idol, of making the temple the means by which they would worship God into God himself for them, that they would look at it with such reverence um, that they couldn't see God's hand at work um, in Jesus. And so there's that idea. Then also when, so I'm sort of associating God with this holy place because this is a place where they would meet with God, um, where the presence of God resided. Um, but then with Moses, Moses throughout the New Testament, whenever you see Jesus talking about Moses, remember um, Moses and the prophets, he's talking about the law and the application of the law um, in the people's lives. And um, so Moses, because Moses... The law was mediated through Moses. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, and then all the explanations and applications of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai were given to Moses by God, and then Moses gave them to the people. He was the intermediary. It was like a game of telephone because they said, God is too holy. We cannot be in his presence. You go for us, Moses. We're too scared. I don't know if you remember that in the desert, but they said, we can't be around this mountain. It's too scary. Moses, you go. Um, You go as our leader. So Moses mediated the law, and the two are sort of associated um, in shorthand. If you're just referring, um, they're talking. If they talk about Moses, they're talking about the law. If they talk about the law. They include Moses as a mediator of the law in their minds when they talk about it. So these two things represent ethics for the people of God 
and worship, wouldn't you say? Do you think that's a good summary? And what, um, what Stephen is saying is the exact same thing that Jesus said about himself. Stephen is alluding to the fact that both of these institutions within the Jewish faith are being fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus presents a new law and a new covenant. Covenant is also associated with the law because that's where God reiterated his covenant with Moses, established the covenant with Moses, reiterated the covenant that he had made with Abraham, with his people. Um, So there is this sense in which Jesus fulfills both And Jesus changes both. Think about it as Christians. For us, do we obey all of the very specifics? Hey, come on in. Do we obey all of the specifics of the um, Old Testament law? No, right? We hold to we we uphold the Ten Commandments, and we look at those as um, the standard for ethical living. But we don't say we don't look at the cleanliness laws. We don't look at the um, The ritual laws, we don't adopt all of those. In Jesus, we don't have to. And that's one of the things that we're going to see that they established later on in Acts. When Gentiles were becoming Christians, they said, well, which part of the Jewish law do they need to obey? And um, they made it pretty clear what, what needs to be obeyed and what doesn't. Jesus fulfills both the law and the temple, the purpose of the temple. And he changes both. In Jesus Christ, he is God, Emmanuel, dwelling with us. And we see that in John's Gospel. Remember last year, the word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, and we're going to look at this idea in Stephen's speech. He talks about this idea of God dwelling with his people, of his very presence being in the midst of them wherever they went, um, because he delighted in them, because he delighted in being with them. I love that. I think about how much I love just being with the people in my life. How fun is it just to spend time with the people that you know and love and care about? Probably your husband, I hope, is one of those. But maybe your children as well. Just that quality time spent with them, whether you're um, you know, making something in the kitchen with them, preparing for the holidays, going on a walk. This is what my parents and I do wherever we are. We didn't get to this last week when we were together or 10 days ago when we were together because we were together for such a short time. But I guarantee you when I'm home in Connecticut over Thanksgiving, I will end up on a walk with my parents. And there's something about that walking alongside each other, just being with each other for an hour or an hour and a half or two hours that you you just talk through things. You walk through things together. You are together in that. It's a sign of relationship, that presence with. Um, so in the temple, God, his presence is with his people. He is. It's a sign of his relationship with his people. It's a sign <laughs> of the covenant that he has made to be with them. But he can only be with them through that atonement that comes about so that their um, sin is atoned for, so that they as an unclean people are not consumed in his presence because of his holiness. His holiness is such that um, he can't be in the presence of, uh, or unholiness cannot be in the presence of a holy God and stand. Um, And so he graciously provides the sacrificial system in the temple so that people could be with him. 
um, by the blood of goats and lambs, then they could enter into his presence for, in a limited way for a limited time. But of course, Hebrews tells us Jesus is our great high priest who has once and for all entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven, the true Holy of Holies. And he has atoned our guilt, our sin, for us by his own blood, the blood of the Lamb. And so it is by Jesus' blood that um, our guilt is atoned for. God is now with us. He can be with us because we will not be consumed in his presence, um, even though we are sinful human beings, fallen human beings. And so Jesus, you can see how because of Jesus' once and for all sacrifice, is the temple necessary? as a means for atoning for guilt in a limited and temporary way? No, it's not. And Jesus alludes to this when he says to the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. And they were so baffled by what he meant. You know, it took so long for us to rebuild this. What are you talking about? And in John chapter 2, Jesus makes it clear he is talking about the temple of his own body. Right? He's talking about his death and his resurrection. Jesus himself is the new temple. And the early Christians understood this, and Stephen understood it, and he's trying to tell these religious leaders in Israel um, about this idea. And, it, and it's still, they don't get it, and they're not going to get it over the course of these long, this long chapter we're about to read. So look out for the ways he's going to tell them. First, about Moses, and second, about the temple. Okay, any questions before we read chapter 7? That was a long introduction, as usual. <laughs> I know. Okay, we're going to read chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, all the way through chapter 8, verse 3. I'm going to read a couple of verses and get us started, kicked off. And if you um, would like to read, read a few verses and then let someone else read. It's okay that all of our translations are different. Um, and if you need a Bible, if anyone needs a Bible, there are always Bibles over here in the, in the bookshelf behind there. Okay. And the high priest said, remember we're in the middle of this, that Stephen has already been, um, he's already been brought into the council. They bring him before the council at the end of chapter 6, and they look at him and his face is like the face of an angel. And now they're going to start questioning him, um, but he's going to give them a great big long speech. And the high priest said, Are these things so? In other words, have you spoken against Moses and against the temple? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he left the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, God had him moved from there to this country in which you are now living. We did not give him as a heritage, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his posterity would be aliens in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and they'll treat them four hundred years that I will judge the nation which they serve said God and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. 
and he gave them <coughs> the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised them on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, <coughs> and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. <coughs> and the patriarchs becoming envious stole Joseph out of Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and made him save and reward in the presence of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph <laughs> told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought the son of silver from the son of Hamor in Shechem. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. <coughs> when he was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking the Egyptian. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was giving them deliverance by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and would have, and would have reconciled them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wrong, wronging his neighbor, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge for us? Do you want to kill me as you told your Egyptian yesterday? At this report, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Egypt, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai with a flame of fire in the bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, they came the voice of the Lord. <coughs> I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac and of Jacob. 
and Moses trembled, and Jared did not dare to it. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses who had rejected with the words. He made the ruler and judge. He was sent to be their ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. They led him out of Egypt and did wonders and miracle signs, miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and 40 <laughs> years in the desert. This is Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly of the in the desert when the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with his dear father and he received living words to pass on to us. Now my fathers would not obey but rejected and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt we do not know what has become of him. And they, made a, and they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the, in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also looked also took up the tabernacle of Malach and the star of your god Remphan, um, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the wilderness, as God directed when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn brought it with Joshua when they possessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. And it was there until the time of David who found favor with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house then. And yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, and earth my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You sit next and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your father says, so do you. Which of the prophets did your father is not persecuted? And they still those who foretold the coming of the when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. 
But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, <coughs> dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. When they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Samuel was there giving approval to his death. One on that day, a great persecution fell, a perception fell out against the church of Jerusalem, and all except their apostles was gathered through Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Isn't that amazing? Do you ever have people say to you, I have this all the time, people say, well, I don't really, I, I didn't go to Sunday school as a child. I don't really know the Bible well enough. Do I know the Bible well enough to come to your Bible study? And I always say, yes, you do, come. But also, if you ever have someone asking you, well, what's a good summary of the Old Testament? That was a great one right there, was it? felt very long because it took us a long time to read it, but it's not that long. He trucks through several hundred years pretty quickly and gives a pretty good commentary on it, right? Without he, any notes. Not, without any notes. I know by the power of the Holy Spirit, Stephen is there without any notes. And just some characteristics and things that you notice when you look at it in the original language, when you look at the quotes, he is quoting from the Septuagint. His Bible was maybe not the same as the Hebraic Bible, um, the Hebraic Jews' Bible, because remember, he's, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that those Hellenistic Jews would have used. That's what they would have studied in their synagogues. And so he's showing the quotes that he's using. When he quotes from Amos, he's quoting from the Septuagint version. And he's suggesting something that maybe you don't have to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem, which is an interesting thought. Uh, maybe there's something else going on here in Jesus, and maybe something has changed once and for all in Jesus. Any questions about anything you notice? We're going to go through what did we notice in this big, long um, passage. But any questions about it before we dig in? Well, I have a question. Uh, this is more like what was that like? The signs were. Yeah. And it said, and here it says, uh, making, making them expose their babies so that they may not, might not live. Yeah. Is that just like abandoning them? Yeah. Like them or? Yeah. So there was, remember that in, in Egypt at the beginning of Exodus, you see that the Pharaoh told them, you know, said, he felt nervous because these resident aliens in his country were more prevalent than the Egyptians. They were, they were so fertile and so productive that they were multiplying so much and so he said well let them make them expose their infants expose especially the male infants so that they wouldn't rise up in as an army mm -hmm. against him so he wouldn't be creating an army that would oppose him right in the midst of his country which is a horrible thing to think about so he was commanding them to commit infanticide mm -hmm. 
of their own. And they didn't really want to do it, and they didn't really do it. Thank goodness. Remember the two midwives in Exodus. They're one of the two women. Lots of women in Scripture are not given names. Those two midwives are given names, which is a really big, significant moment because the Lord is saying they were really important. They were really brave, and they kept back. They, they, didn't, they didn't cause the babies to be exposed. They disobeyed the Pharaoh in order to obey God. Isn't that cool? It took a lot of courage. Okay, any other questions about this biblical history that we have presented? Okay, so if we're... St- I didn't give you very much time to jump in there. but Okay, so it's a great summary of biblical history. And the two points, remember the two charges against Stephen. Number one, you're speaking against Moses and the law and the covenant on one side. And you're speaking against this place, the temple and the way we worship God and the way we believe we're supposed to worship God here. Um, and, um, Mo- and so Stephen is, in his summary of biblical history, he is highlighting certain themes in order to counter these two charges and in order to prove he's not just countering the charges, but he's then going to accuse them. He's going to accuse them of not obeying the law and not obeying the covenant. He's going to accuse them of not obeying the command of God to worship the Lord alone. He's going to say, you broke the law, you break the law, and you commit idolatry, just like your fathers. See, here's the history of our people. Is it possible that you're wrong? Um, Except he doesn't say it that kindly. Is it possible that you're wrong? He says it pretty boldly at the end by the time we get to verse 50. Doesn't he? he, And it's no wonder that they get so angry at him that they are gnashing their teeth. They cannot hear. They don't feel convicted by his speech. Rather, they feel enraged. And they're going to stone him as a result. Um, Okay, so looking at Moses and the law, he summarizes their past disobedience both to the law and then also their past disobedience as a people, as the people of God, to God's chosen leader and God's chosen deliverer. And so when we look at this, he starts out talking about Abraham and Abraham, God calling Abraham out of Mesopotamia, God giving him the covenant of circumcision. Do you see that in verse 8? And so we see there's a cluster of themes surrounding the law. There's the covenant There's circumcision as the sign of the covenant. There's um, leaders, godly leaders and deliverers. And the theme is opposition. He's accusing um, their forefathers, their common forefathers of opposition to the leaders and of disobedience to the law. Do you see that in this big, long passage? Here's a great little um, place to zero in. So first of all, he talks about the covenant of circumcision. He sets it up. The covenant was given. He talks about Moses and the covenant also being renewed and the law being given through Moses. If you skip all the way down to the 30s where he talks about Moses being the one. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, verse 38, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, He received living oracles 
to give to us. Right? So the law is given at Mount Sinai. The covenant is made with Abraham in verse 8. And the law, the covenant is renewed um, and specified with Moses. The, the law is given through Moses in verse 38. And in between, what we see is we see a theme of disobedience and rejection of God's chosen leaders. You see this with starting with Moses. So we see it starts out, he talks about Abraham, then he goes on to Joseph, then he goes on to Moses, and he divides up Moses' life in three sections. Moses lived to be 120. His first section, his first 40 years, his second 40 years, his third 40 years. And then he goes on from there to very quickly talk about the tabernacle or the tent and the temple and the house of God. Which is, this is the period of the kings within um, Israel's history, right? Starting with David, the first king. Well, Saul before him, but Saul was a bad king. So let's start on a good foot, starting with David. And his sons. Yeah, what does that mean? What do you think that means? Yeah, we're going to get to that when we talk about worship because that's specifically about idolatry. Those are other gods. Moloch is another god, Rephan is another god. Baal, he's not mentioned in there, but that was their favorite other god that they would just sort of go back to like a dog to its own vomit. Um, okay, so. This rejection of God's chosen leader, we see it, um, this rejection of the covenant, essentially. Rejection of the covenant is seen in the rejection of God's chosen deliverers and leaders. And we see it in opposition first to Joseph. Remember, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. We see it in verse 9. They sold him into Egypt. Um, But God rescued him and preserved him. And you see that reconciliation coming about. But... um, uh, and, and Stephen talks about it, but he's highlighting this discord between Joseph and his brothers. They rejected him and said, no, you're not going to be our leader. You think we're going to bow down to you? No, it's not going to happen. And then the Lord made it happen um, when Joseph became Pharaoh's right-hand man. And Joseph's brothers were bu- brought back to Egypt during the famine, and there was reconciliation. Joseph forgave them, and they were able to receive bread for each other, for the brothers, and then bread for Jacob. And Jacob came down to Egypt, and they lived there. The the whole people lived there for 400 years. And then this theme of disobedience to God's godly leaders and deliverers comes back up with Moses. And this is, I think, why why Stephen goes into specifics about what happens in Egypt before Moses goes out to Midian, before Moses even encounters God in the burning bush. And that's that he, remember he sees, there's an incident where he sees um, an Egyptian person uh, oppressing a Hebrew, and he intercedes, he intervenes, and he ends up killing the Egyptian. But he was hoping that his that would be a sign. He believed on some level that he was called to um, deliver the people of Israel from their oppression, even at that point. And he, he believed that by interceding, then they would see him as their leader. They would look to him. But what happens is the next day he goes back, and again two of his brothers, this time two of his brothers are arguing. And when he says, why are you arguing? You're both brothers. Don't argue. They say, who are you? Who do you think you are? Who made you a ruler and a judge 
Well, the answer to that is going to become clear once he goes off into Midian. It's God who's going to make him a ruler and a judge for the people of Israel. But there's this rejection, even at the beginning of Moses' sense of a calling to ministry. There's a rejection of his ministry by his own brothers. And so you see that in verse 27. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Okay, any questions about that rejection? Reje- yeah, that, please. That Never knew about fried okra until I got here. Now I'll be frying okra wherever I go. Um, the, you're right. You're exactly right. And we're going to look at that. That idolatry is the second piece, this charge about the temple. In this first charge about Moses in the law, they reject the leader. And then he says this covenant sign of circumcision, God gave it to you in verse 8, but you did not receive it. And look in verse 51. Stephen says, I mean, no wonder why they don't like him. You stiff-necked people. Uh, That doesn't always work when you preach that. Can you imagine us preaching that from our pulpit? Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And he says it also in verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You didn't obey. Is it possible that the past disobedience of your fathers could show you that you're not perfect, that you too might be sinful, that you might not get it right, and that specifically the intuited conclusion is you got it wrong when you crucified Jesus. That is what he's trying to get them to realize. You got it wrong when you crucified Jesus. Um, Is it possible you were wrong? That's the theme all throughout these early speeches and these early sermons in the Acts. Repent repent, repent, and specifically repent of what you used to think about Jesus because he is not only the Messiah, but he's also the Son of God. So this circumcision of the heart and of the ears is something that the prophet Jeremiah alludes to. Circumcision of the heart was actually, it was uh, understood metaphorically as the cutting away of pride and sinfulness. And you see it in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, when the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah to his people, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your heart. It's a metaphorical idea of this, um, this pride and this sinfulness, this sin that is so close and so all-pervasive that it, results, um, that it affects even our vision, affects even the way we view the world. Jeremiah in chapter 6, verse 10 He talks about it again. Um, The Lord says through Jeremiah, Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord to them is an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. 
Stephen is alluding to this prophecy of Jeremiah, and he's saying, this is real. This is right here in this room. Okay, so this first um, charge, he's saying, because of the past disobedience of your fathers, is it possible that now you are still being disobedient in the way that you um, have rejected Jesus? The second part is about worship and about the place of the temple. And all throughout this passage, all throughout his speech, he is sort of hinting at the fact that God is not limited to the land of the promise. God is not like those other gods that are not gods, that are territorial gods. Every one of the gods within the Egyptian pantheon of gods and within the Canaanite pantheon of gods, they were localized deities. Their power, they believed, the people believed that their power was limited to a certain land. So that's why you had to bring them into the new land and see if they could get along with the gods in that other land and then try and, you know, they're limited gods. And that's why Yahweh, all throughout his revelation to his people, is trying to change their understanding of what it means to be God and why he is the only God that there is, that those other gods are not even gods. They might exist on some level spiritually, but you don't even pay attention to them because they're not worth it. They have no power compared to the universal, sovereign, omnipotent power of Yahweh. And that's one of the things he's constantly trying to show his people. He's trying to show it um, to Abraham and Sarah, even while he's wooing them, calling them out from Haran, out from the place where they grew up, out from even beyond that Ur of the Chaldeans. He's calling them not just away from that place geographically, but away from that way of being and believing, from this understanding of God as being a limited God, and not only a limited God, if God is limited, then we can control him, can't we? If God is localized, he only has control over a certain aspect of our lives, then we can limit him. We, we can control him. It's a formula. If I do this, plus this, in this way, then that equals God is going to have to do this. I can make God do what I want him to do. I don't know if you've ever received any bad advice from anyone on any of the number of things you've gone through in your life, but one of the things that recurs for me is um, my singleness, the fact that I'm single. A lot of people think, well, now what happened with that? <laughs> what, you know, how is it that you're single? You know, don't you know it's pretty easy? Like, you just meet someone, you get married. You know, there's a formula to it. And there is. For a lot of people, there's a formula to it. But a lot of the advice that I get given is, well, why don't you just try this? If you do this, this will happen. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is very specific. Why don't you get out there, meet new people, do this, do this and this and this. And then it's a one-to-one ratio, it's a mathematic equation, and this will happen. And then when I tell them, I just don't think the Lord has wanted it to happen yet, then what they'll say, there's another formula. Well, if you just give to God the desires of your heart, he will make it happen. Do you see how that's an idolatrous formula? If I do this and this, and then I do this, then God will do this. If I, do, if I do my part, if I do what I'm supposed to do, then God will give me what I want. If I do this, God will give me what I want. That is an idolatrous formula for relating to God because our God is the Lord, the creator of all. Um, we cannot force his hand at anything. It's a really sobering reality. And this is the thing that he's trying to show his people all throughout their history. He's saying, I'm not localized, and I cannot be controlled. But the need, the desire on their part to keep going on and worshiping 
see the localized God that they can control. This is what Stephen is showing. So first of all, he's saying there are other places of theophany, revelation, and worship of the Lord God of the universe besides just this temple because God is not limited to this place. He's all around. He called Abraham out of Ur. He talked to Abraham in Haran. Then he was down in Egypt with Joseph. He was Lord even over Egypt. He spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai from the burning bush. And then he spoke to Moses again when he brought the people out and he gave them the covenant of the law. He is not limited in his place. You built him a temple. Yes, he dwelt in the tent for a while. You built him a temple, but then he goes on in this pinnacle of saying, you cannot control God. God does not live in a house on earth like you human beings. He is not limited He cannot be controlled. And what Stephen does is he quotes from Isaiah 66, and he quotes in verse 49. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? I am not limited in my divinity. I am not limited in my power. He's saying, I made all of the universe. I cannot be contained in this house. And so he's attacking right there this mode of operation, this approach to God that would say, well, we've got him right here in the temple. If I offer this and this sacrifice, then God will do thus and such for me. If I scratch God's back, he will scratch my back. Like God is a human being um, who could owe us a favor. Um, So he's attacking this idea about other places of revelation and worship. And he is saying, um, he's saying throughout their history, the people of Israel were trying to be, the Lord was wooing them away from this idolatrous way of being. And they weren't always eager to follow. And he cites examples. He talks about the calf, the golden calf in the wilderness. And then he quotes from Amos. And you're exactly right, Trudy, when he talks about, Amos, um, he's talking about this idolatry, not just the idolatry in the wilderness. Um, he also talks about their desire to go back to Egypt. A great phrase for idolatry is this phrase in verse 39. In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They were wooed by God, called out of Egypt, delivered from Egypt, but they wanted to return to their own enslavement because at least they knew that. At least they understood what that entailed. They could somehow perceive, believe in their hearts that they were in control, but they're not in control at all. In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt where they knew what to expect, where they could control their circumstances. He talks, too, about the images you made to worship, and that's that quote from Amos chapter 5, verse 25, found in verses 42 and 43. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, these other gods that they worshipped. And so... um, this idea of this past idolatry, idolatry, what Stephen is suggesting is he's saying, you are like your fathers. Is it possible that you, like your fathers, are continuing on in this idolatry? Even now, you're continuing on to worship other gods, even though you think you're worshiping Yahweh, because of the way in which you're worshiping. Because you put the image of the temple first and foremost, and you obsess over the stuff of the temple rather than the God who, um, who dwells there, rather than the presence of the Lord who has agreed to dwell there for a little while because he loves us and he wants to be with us, but he's bigger than that. 
Um, so he's suggesting that um, their past idolatry, their history of idolatry, has caused them to come into this present idolatry where they were so attached to the physical temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that they could not see the living temple of Jesus Christ for who he was. God's very presence, the full divinity, the full Godhead dwelling in Jesus Christ. That Jesus um, is the eternal word who was before all creation and that he dwelt among us. There's that language in John's gospel that Jesus intended among us. He took on flesh and his flesh was like the temple of old because God's presence resided with him, in him, and in Jesus God is with us. Emmanuel. Okay. They're so upset by this accusation of disobedience and idolatry, their teeth are grinding. It's like they're propelled by something else. It's almost like they're possessed. It just sounds so evil what happens next. And yet the way Luke tells it, he's showing that the Lord is still in control. Um, They heard these things. They were enraged. They ground their teeth. And Stephen, though they might be full of something else, full of the devil, Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit in verse 55. And Stephen is given a vision of Jesus. He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. He sees the full glory of God. And he talks about it. He says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it makes them even matter. And they cry out. They stop their ears. We can't listen to this. And they rush together. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the stoning was the punishment for blasphemy. They believe that, that he's blaspheming. But he is bearing witness to who Jesus is and what God has done in Jesus. The first martyr bears witness in Stephen. That word martyr means witness in the Greek. And it came to mean what we understand as martyr, someone who dies for their faith. It came to mean that because those first Christians who bore witness to Jesus were very often killed. And Stephen is the first one who dies. And what are the words coming out of his mouth as he's dying? But he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah, exactly, Sarah. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And um, it's so true that Jesus' words there on the cross came true. That through Jesus, through his death right there, we are forgiven. We're forgiven for the sins that we've done and the sins that we don't even know that we've done. Uh, our, our deeds uh, known and unknown. Those things that we've done and left undone. Even those things God forgives us from because of Jesus. Because of Jesus' death. And what we see here is that the Lord is going to answer Stephen's prayer here. The answer to Stephen's prayer, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's going to come about. We're going to see it really soon. Because the Lord is going to bring Saul, who witnessed this death, to come to faith. Saul is going to repent of this act. Saul is going to repent of this martyrdom. Saul is going to repent of the persecution that we see him starting in the next couple of verses at the beginning of chapter 8. Saul approved of his execution, and there's a persecution that he's, arise, that he's um, bringing about. And that persecution is not just of men and women or not just of men, but you see in verse 3, the Greek is really specific. For the first time, 
women are being persecuted. Remember that the women stood at the foot of Jesus without fear that the same fate would befall them. Whereas the men were all hiding. The male disciples had to hide because they really were, it really was a real problem that if they were there, they might also be crucified too. The women would not have been crucified um, for standing at the feet of Jesus because um, the, the, they weren't that much of a problem. But now with the Holy Spirit, they're a threat. And they're a threat to the church. Or they're a threat to the established religious leadership. Um, the new church, something new is happening in the church. And we see that in the way that Saul is dragging off both men and women, committing them to prison. But the Lord is faithful even in the midst of this persecution. And the Lord is going to work through this persecution. We're going to see this next week to spread the good news all throughout Judea and now on to Samaria. The next step. It's getting further. The gospel is going to spread. And this forgiveness is going to be something that Saul, Paul, will understand at the very depths of his being. And the Lord is going to give him such eloquence and such theological understanding about it that our life as a church will never be the same because of that prayer that Stephen prayed in his last breath, because of the forgiveness that Paul would receive. And that forgiveness is our forgiveness. Even as we, like the Israelites, disobey the law, have uncircumcised hearts, even as we are prone um, to try to put God into our own formula, to worship him on our terms, um, to worship anything but him, to bring about what we want in our lives, to um, maintain that illusion of control that we think that we have. And so that forgiveness is for us too, even while we're caught up in that. So I've gone way over. Let me pray for you right now. Dear Lord Jesus, we lift up to you our hearts and we ask, um, cut away from our hearts the pride and the sin that obscures our vision. Uh, change our beliefs, Lord. Bring us out of Egypt. Let us not turn back to the old ways of doing things. Thank you, Lord, that you are God. You are Lord over all, and we cannot control you. so much better when you're in control, but we forget it. And so, Lord, even as we go out from here, would you give us grace? Um, Give us grace to let go of those things that we cannot control. Give us grace to see your hand at work marvelously, even when we don't get what we want. Um, And, Lord, Um, Thank you. Thank you for the forgiveness that you give us through your son, Jesus Christ, that forgiveness um, that we see and we will see is about to be given to Paul. Thank you, Lord, for this great history of your church. Thank you, Lord, that we are indeed a part of it, that this is our heritage, that these are our ancestors in faith. And so now give us courage like them even as we go out from here. In Jesus' name, amen.